Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the London Circle. 20 years ago, Britain and the US launched a war on Iraq, which ended with horrific consequences for the country itself, for the region, and probably for the entire world. Today, I'll be discussing with Matt Kennard, uh, an investigative journalist at the Classified UK and author, and with Marco Carnilos, an Italian diplomat who served as ambassador in Iraq for a couple of years, those consequences and what could have been done in order to avoid that war. Enjoy. So, I mean, obviously, when we're talking about Iraq, uh, I mean, I was born in Iraq. And uh, although I, I never got to spend too much time, I, I spent my entire life outside of Iraq. But uh, when talking of Iraq, um, uh, you know, my, my father always romanticizes Iraq about the poetry, about the beauty, about the arts, about the food, about, uh, you know, the, the, the two rivers, about um, civilization, all of these things. Unfortunately, though, I found uh, recently that when raising the issue of Iraq when, uh, with, with, with youngsters as, uh, as young as my own, my own sons, that the immediate image that comes to those young minds is an image of, of carnage, of horror, of uh, violence, of bloodshed, of explosions. And um, it, it almost breaks my heart to think that that is what, you know, we as the civilized world managed to do to a country um, simply because there was a lie perpetuated, which is that Iraq at the time uh, had and possessed and was capable of delivering weapons of mass destruction. And 20 years on, 20 years on, things have not gotten better in Iraq. And I, I spoke uh, only yesterday to some of my relatives trying to gauge what the situation was and, um, you know, what, what really um, hurts is the fact that not only are people suffering immensely, but they have almost lost hope and they speak as though, you know, you know, this is it. Don't ask us. Don't ask because this is how it is. How did we get here? How do we get here? Well, <laughs> well, like you said, for a lie, I mean, it, there's an argument that Iraq in the last 50 years has been the, the victim of the worst um, campaign by the Western imperial powers of any country in the world. I think if you look from um, the 80s uh, through to the 90s after the first Gulf War, then Operation Desert Fox, then the, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom to now, there's just constant interference um bombing violence um and it's all about we know what it's about it's about the resources that iraq holds uh they call it in actually i used to work for financial times and there's a word they use for it they call it the resource curse which is kind of a counterintuitive idea that um because obviously if you've got huge resources of oil or other minerals then you would think well yeah but you'd also think it's a lucky thing right you should be it shouldn't be called a curse but even the the financial establishment call it the resource curse because the stats show that if you are if you have those kind of resources then you will become the target for imperial powers who want to maintain control of them and obviously in 2009 all the big oil companies did return to Iraq. Um, there were two rounds uh, of awards were given BP and Shell returned. Um, BP got Rumela oil field in the south. They still have an interest, a, a large interest in that. Shell got another um, uh, field in the south, actually. And it, it, as you say, it's a complete tragedy. The, the degree of human carnage that happened in Iraq, I don't think is well understood. I remember when I was researching my first book, which was about what the US military were, were up to in Iraq um, around the really, uh, the, the times of the awful uh, violence from 2004 to 2007, eight. Um, I mean, it's unbelievable reading uh, reports on what was happening. I mean, complete um, daily um, massacres by the, by the Americans, but also obviously insurgents, um, uh, awful, uh, war crimes like the Mamoudia massacre, Haditha, 2005 and 2006, just constant um, uh, violence and, con I mean, I, I feel like the whole of the Iraqi society must have some form of PTSD. You can't recover from that level of violence in the short term. And 
and it, it's a I think that it's a major crime and it should be understood that way it shouldn't be understood as what it's described as in the media now which is a blunder I mean we we can accept that it was or you can accept in the mainstream media that it went wrong because obviously what we all saw it on the television screens but it wasn't it didn't just go wrong it was a major crime based on a lie that all the people involved knew was a lie came out in the Chilcot report in 2016 Alistair Campbell got the dossier the Iraqi dossier sexed up um with information that they all knew was wrong that came out in the Chilcot report that is that is unbe- uh, an outrage it's it's interesting that um, that Matt you mentioned the resource the, the resource curse um i i recall talking to a tribal leader several years ago six seven years ago uh from iraq i i met him uh, at a conference in istanbul and i recall very very vividly how he said he said you know it's very odd but i pray day and night that the oil just dries up that we wake up tomorrow and there is absolutely no oil so that basically people and countries just just forget about us for for a while i i, I remember how when he was talking he was talking so it was so visceral it was so real it was so deep During that time when the war started in 2003 you were in what in New York I believe I was handling the Middle East file at the Italian mission at the UN and inside the Middle East file at the time the more important file was Iraq 2002 2004 and the Middle East uh, peace process these basically were the two main uh, but of course uh, very quickly the iraqi file uh, took over on uh, any other file and uh, since uh, september 2002 was clear to us uh, especially uh, after september 11 okay but it was clear to us that no matter what uh, the americans were going for war that that was clear from september in our assessment yeah, yeah. yes it was not clear to the assessment uh, because you know when you see such a big build up in terms of logistic in terms of media attention in terms of uh, spin our experience inside being inside the system is that you do not build up such a circus just to stop one day and say okay we were wrong that was the, the the and then the more we we were approaching the more were close to the situation that was a point of no return the more were following the, the debate inside the security council about uh, the authorization that the, the famous uh, second resolution that was supposed to provide the legal coverage to the war the more we realized that uh, that administration that US administration at the time was made clear uh, informally listen we are going to go no matter what even if we have the legal coverage because the 1991 operation from the legal point of view was carried out uh, perfectly from from the procedural point of view from the procedural point of view there was the resolution 678 november 23rd 1990 that basically uh, all necessary means the famous wording that uh, in the un and international law jargon means okay you're not going to do this there's going to be all necessary consequences it means war and so it was clear for us was frustrating at a certain extent because uh, we have been advising discreetly the Americans listen don't go to Iraq don't uh, go to make a war it's not going to be a cake walk as you believe i remember at the time i read uh, a few years later that before the, the, the war tony blair at the time consultant the four of the top british expert on middle east yeah. uh, one of them was i think toby dodge yeah. that professor at the london school of economy yeah. and other three all of the four ex top experts that were consulted by british government advice against Good. going to war to no avail and the sense that uh, sometimes these are the consultation that we are to say to wash your conscience yes I consulted people but then you know 
the the issue uh, has to be settled. And uh, remember at the time, the public prosecutor who was it? Goldsmith was it? Who was advised? Uh, who was who also the ruling, gave advice? The ruling of the top. Uh, that this was wrong. This was illegal. Yeah, there was remember no. the Catherine Gunn case, the GCHQ whistleblower. She got off because the government didn't want to have to release the legal advice that was clearly. Yeah, that they were was, saying uh, it's not. It wouldn't be illegal. Elizabeth uh, Willhurst, I believe, was. Uh, I used to know her because uh, when I entered in the foreign service, she was in the legal department, the foreign office dealing with Antarctica. Believe what? <laughs> and she was upset by the fact that the ruling by Goldsmith uh, that was against legally that the war was uh, tricky. The legal case was tricky. Let's say that it was tricky, to say the least, was not released uh, immediately. And yet we're here now when not a single person Yeah. who was involved has no one... ever faced a single day in court, which is incredible, really, isn't it? When I mean, because there's a lot of imperial crimes that have been perpetrated by the US and UK since, well, since, <laughs> since Dot, yeah. But this was, this, for me, this was just such a clear, that even the rationale that was given didn't, they, they, they didn't, it didn't stack up at all. It was so obvious. And yet, even in that case, not a single person has faced any kind of, um, Uh, criminal proceedings. The only person who's in jail now in London is Julian Assange, who did more than anyone to expose the crimes of Iraq and Afghanistan. So it's a, for me, that's a very, very um, clear way of understanding how our society works. You know, the, the, I mean, th this is interesting because, I mean, during those times, and that's why I asked about September 2002, because from probably July, August, when the, 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 the beat of the drums of war began to become more rapid. Uh, the anti-war movement came together. Um, I, at the time, was at the Muslim Association of Britain, Stop the War Coalition, CND. We came together and we organized a huge demonstration um, on around the 22nd of, November, of, of September 2002, warning against the war in Iraq. And at the time, I have to say that we were extremely hopeful seeing the crowds because there was something like 500,000 at the time filling the, the streets of central London. And uh, we were quite hopeful that the, the global movement in opposition to the war was going to win the day. And then we started organizing for the Two Million March, which then became um, on the 15th of February, 2003. And that was just before the um, the discussion at the Security Council where Colin Powell... I was in that room that day. Wow. And I have to say, you know, I'm no expert. I'm no expert. But I have to say, I was looking at the images that Colin Powell, a seemingly quite intelligent man, was pointing to the screen and showing. And I was thinking, how could you tell from these images? Let me tell you something. I was in the room because it was an open session of the Security Council. It was not a closed session. And the, the people, we, the, the, what we are called the people in the system, or well, the diplomats, none of the people that were inside that room were impressed in terms of proofs that were uh, presented in, in that room. But we realized at the time that it was not any more matter of proofs. It was just a, was just a decision that, uh, listen, the, the, as far as we, we learn later, that military planning had just started in the spring 2002. Someone said that even immediately after September 11, I was in New York and September 11 was quite, uh, an, quite an experience in order to see how the, the, the reaction of the American people, yeah. the reaction of the American media establishment, American political establishment was... Uh, I will never forget that the first 48 hours, just, uh, I'm just shifting for a second from Iraq, but just to give you uh, a sort of uh, how the, they used to think at the time, and it was a, a handless discussion with my American friends at the time, said the first 48 hours, 72 hours, the only question the journalists were asking, how it was possible. Uh, they were shocked that these people could carry out the terrorists brutal, horrible terrorist attack that was taken. So they were asking technicalities, how we have been taken by surprise, why we have not been able to stop, uh, stop prevent, understand. And nobody was asking why they did it. Uh, the first question I would, okay, in terms of forensic and investigation, I have to understand 
how the operation was carried out, where were the mistakes. But also what the motive was. But at the end, the, the, the motivation. And so I said, but are you not interested about the motivation? And then came George W. Bush that gave this statement that was, I will never forget it. They did it because they hate what we are. And I remember one night in New York in a very heated discussion with some American friends, I said, maybe it's true, but have you ever considered that they did what they did? is an inexcusable, full condemnation. Except, have you ever for a moment considered that maybe you should ask yourself that they don't do what they, they didn't do what they did because of what you are, but because of what you do or did? And that was the discussion that was, and in but that, a way- that, that, But that was a, that, that, that kind of discussion was off the table. I mean, we couldn't have that discussion. I mean, in as far away as in London, we couldn't have that discussion. Yeah, the shock, let's say that uh, the shock was so big. You remember basically NATO came out uh, claiming Article 5 immediately a few days uh, after. And even the American was a little embarrassed because no, 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 we don't need Article 5 because the, basically the European overreacted in terms to be forthcoming with the United States after such an horrible attack had been carried out. And then again, the discussion, uh, I, I tell you a personal story that maybe could be useful. Uh, let's jump after the war. There was the embarrassing moment in June 2003, let's say, where the, they were looking for the weapons of mass destruction all around Iraq. And these uh, weapons of mass destruction didn't come out. One, and this was becoming also a very embarrassing situation for all the Western European governments that are su supported the war. And among that government, there was the Italian government at the time. And because, uh, as you remember, France and Germany with Russia, they took a different position and they basically blocked the second resolution in the Security Council. One day, a little bit exasperated by the situation, also because uh, the pressure from Rome, uh, I asked to my American counterpart, and I provide a typical, uh, very pragmatic uh, Italian-style recipe, if I could say, said, for God's sake, take a few weapons, just <laughs> bury somewhere, and yeah, then just, discover and it, discover end it, of the just... story. And I will never forget that the American colleague was shocked by my... <laughs> suggestion because he, he said we don't do these things oh dear oh my I, word so at, the, at that moment i realized that when you have a big power that and in believing in its own propaganda it's over mm, mm. correct that was the, basically the moment i say okay yeah it's it's over it's over listen 20 years on in fact not 20 years on one year on one year on remember that um, the correspondence dinner where George W. Bush made fun of himself at the podium saying, oh, maybe weapons of mass destruction are here. Maybe they're under this table. It was horrible. I remember watching that but and was thinking- clever. Listen, was clever for the Western audiences because basically put the issue in terms of laughing. It was a show, uh, a talk show, entertainment show. Uh, people were distracted by that because basically you see a president, usually in the correspondent dinner, the American president act and jokes and a sense. But in that way, it was a, a way to banalize yeah. all the issue. And was I, very I, clever. I see, I see. But, but it was... It was utterly horrible. And sick. I mean, it's, it was. Sick. It was I mean, absolutely. To this, I mean, did you see? It? And recently, he was talking about Putin's illegal invasion of uh, Ukraine. Of Ukraine. He said, he said Iraq, Iraq instead. Yeah, exactly. Because it's it's quite a Freudian, isn't it? It's That's, Freudian. So, yeah. it's, it's absolutely Freudian Freudian. moment. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. It's funny because I well, not funny, but I wonder from his perspective what he what he thinks about it. Because obviously, from an outside perspective, we know that he launched a criminal war which completely destroyed a country uh, and as you said earlier it's not recovered and may never recover i mean the level of savagery which happened there it takes generations may not ever recover but he's getting fed different information to us and he has to come up with a way of rationalizing what he did so in his head i wonder if he can make those kind of jokes because he does he still thinks which you no one wants to look in the mirror and think they're uh think they're a monster so he would have rationalized it in some way i think and they just protected from the uh the results of what they do a lot of the time especially him retired doing those awful paintings in texas like and it's the same with the population at large we are protected from the real consequences of of our foreign policy um and you see that 
very, very clearly with Iraq, but it, it operates across the board. People have barely any knowledge about the UK's role in the world, and even more so in the US. Um, so, I mean, what 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 should happen is uh, they should all be tried, <laughs> and we should be talking about them the way we're talking about Putin. Because um, if you look at how the media, a lot of the establishment media here, they are very, they laugh at the crude Russian propaganda about Ukraine, and there is a lot of it. But yet, these are the same people that echoed, amplified propaganda, which was even more ridiculous from the Bush and, Bush and Blair administrations. Because if you look at the WMDs, which, as you said, weren't found, and they actually knew well, that the, the intelligence they were getting was that they, the, they couldn't say with any degree of certainty that he had a weapons of mass destruction program, but they went forward anyway. And then there was none were found. That that propaganda is more ridiculous than Putin saying that he invaded Ukraine to denazify the country, because although obviously that is propaganda, there are Nazis in Ukraine. So at least there's a kernel of truth. There wasn't even a kernel of truth with the with the WMD. But we have this, we have a completely um uh, uh a different way of looking. I'm talking about the mainstream media here. We have a completely different way of looking uh, and analyzing and understanding an official enemy's foreign policy and our own. Iraq was a major crime. The people involved should be tried. We can't. We can say that about Putin. Why can't we say that about our own leaders? Um, and there's, there's, that's a whole another discussion. But for me, I think that for some kind of remedy and salving the pain and uh, of of Iraq would be to bring these people to justice. It's never going to happen. But we should there should be a movement for it. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn. It was quite interesting when he, the, the Labour leader who was elected in 2015. He, initially, there was talk that they were going to push for Tony Blair to be uh, tried, and that kind of I don't know quite what happened with that, but it kind of got lost in the in the general. But that that he was a lone mainstream voice um, saying that, um, and, and I think and people forget that he actually made an apology to the Iraqi people for the war. Yes. I mean, and he was he stood alone amongst the array, um, you know, the the, the of, of Western leaders in doing so. But let me, there was something that uh, Marco said that that interested me, and that is the the media, the role of the media. Um, you see. I, I'm a linguist. I mean, my first degree and my my master's was in translating and interpreting. So language is very close to me. And I, I, I've studied language quite closely. And I am aware, and I think most people are aware, that the, the very first step towards war is language, is the words that you use, the way in which you portray the other, uh, using words like uh, a monster, or someone who is rabid, or, you know, you use these words and they usually mean that this is something which is about to sort of progress, about to take off, about to get even worse. And out of the um, array of uh, narratives or discourses that were employed and used by the media in order to uh, soften the pro progress of uh, the likes of the UK and the US towards war, I recall very, very well, early on at around um, November, December time, when there was a determined um, narrative that Iraq, under the previous regime, under Saddam Hussein, was actually made up of three uh, totally isolated communities, Sunnis, Shi'is, and Kurds. Now, the very first thing that came to my mind was that someone must have made a mistake because, I mean, okay, Sunnis, Shias, you're talking about religion, but then Kurds, you're talking about nationalism. So, you know, you would say Arabs and Turks, and you would say Muslims and Christians, for instance, or Yazidis. Why would you make it that? And that started to gain momentum. And then all of a sudden, everyone was talking about Sunnis, Shias, and Kurds. I recall I attended, um, I, I spoke at uh, a BBC Live audience a panel made up of about six or seven speakers at the time. And um, we were back backstage awaiting to be called in, introduced, and then called in so we take our seats. And I remember um, it was my turn. So I was starting to, to walk. And then I stopped because I was hearing all of a sudden our next panelist is an Arab Sunni Iraqi, and it was the very 
first time in my entire life that you were characterized in the so i stopped because who was this i didn't even recognize myself despite the fact that i am arab despite the fact that i am sunni but i never identified according to that that um filled me with worry and i remember mentioning this in several of the demonstrations and the public meetings leading up to the war saying that this is dangerous because what's going to happen is that essentially we are it might be just words but they are words that will have consequences yeah. and ultimately they will be acted upon and in fact what we ended up with was exactly that we ended up with a sectarian state a sectarian regime that uh, has this uh, you know sunnis have so much and shias have so much and kurds have so much and and this quarrel that i don't know how long it'll take a generation or two but probably more to remedy if at all and as you you know and i don't want to sound too critical of the journalistic profession but we have to admit the fact that uh, the professionalism of these operators are uh, has been downgraded in the in the last decades and we know that journalists need to oversimplify issues because sometimes they under time constraints you are 30 seconds you have to to but sometimes an excessive oversimplification doesn't go, make a good service for the people they should understand yes journalists they have to provide the news but sometimes they also should at least help to people to understand what's behind certain news uh in the last 20 years uh, what i noticed that is quite concerning for me is the manichean tone and attitude that is characterizing especially western media so there's no there's basically everything becomes uh, z- uh some zero game yeah. it's uh, i'm the evil uh, you are the evil i'm the i'm the good and uh, we are seeing at play today also with the issue of the war uh, in ukraine and there's also a second issue that uh, it's more philosophical if i can raise from my point of view is that uh, uh you quite remember edward said in orientalism that used to say that uh, sometimes the west define itself or what is not and this is something that is going back uh, to uh 5th 5th century before before Christ with the Greek uh vis-a-vis the barbarians the persian and say so sometime i need someone i need an enemy that uh, i portray as different from me bearing different values for me in order to reinforce myself in my own conviction and legitimacy uh, and, and uh, i I'm still surprised after a quarter of a century to see how easily and how quickly in the media spin terms to create enemy 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 you remember the famous american president john quincy adams that used to say the united states should not go along the world in search of monsters to destroy and if you characterize everything as a monster and, and so this uh, basically apocalyptic terms what is diplomacy where is the understanding where is the mediation basically you lose everything and this is what we are watching we have been watching in uh, in the balkans we have been watching in the middle east uh we have been watching now unfortunately again in ukraine uh i need an enemy and sometimes i tend to believe that uh, our western society in particular we need an enemy we need an, an external enemy in order to distract people from the big enemies that usually is inside us and it's not outside but the more you distract people with the enemy outside the more you keep going in terms of your uh, political and your policy you see, i mean the way you put it marco i mean you start to sympathize with with trump's fake news sort of a slogan because to a large extent i mean that's what we've been having and and you know it's it, it always gets me how since i was little and i remember um a conversation between two teachers i think i was about 7 years old and i remember this quite well two teachers were having a discussion and someone said well you know it's going to rain or something and he said oh really where did you 
in the papers. Oh, don't believe anything that you read in the papers. That was that was something that was commonly said. It was widespread. Why is it that the media have so much leverage? Yeah, and it's interesting what Marco was saying about what's happened in the last two decades because I do think there's something sinister has happened to the mainstream media in terms of there's been um, an e it's become even more closed than it was previously. It's always been had a propaganda function in the free West, the media, but there was space for dissent and mavericks within that general edifice like the, you'd have a Seymour Hirsch or a John Pilger um, or Paul Foote but they don't those people can't can't write for the mainstream media anymore they they've squeezed out even the little bits of dissent that exists Seymour Hirsch now writes on Substack Pulitzer Prize winning journalist arguably he used to the write uh, for first it was New Yorker and then they and the didn't allow it anymore then it's exactly. a London Review of Books and then the London Review of Books well, I've been trying to understand that because for me that's a contradiction with what we've seen happening the democratization of the media like with the internet Twitter uh, blogs uh, being able to set up your own outlets you would have thought that would put pressure on the legacy institutions to open up more but the opposite has happened and I don't really understand that but I do actually think it's maybe linked to Iraq because if you remember, although a lot of the media did amplify the propaganda, there were sections of the media which were really a problem for the governments. And maybe not in the US, but here, are, if you remember what Piers Morgan's Daily Mirror did, it was unbelievable. You really saw what a campaigning newspaper could be like. And they did one um, front page, which was the headline was made up of oil companies' logos. Very, very powerful. You would never, ever get that now. Uh, Piers Morgan was actually fired after a quite a sinister um, fake story was fed to them. I don't know the, what happened there, but any, but I think that the powers that be realized at that point that the media needed to be brought in to, to heal even more than it was. And the last 20 years has been a definite sea change in what can um, what can be published in the newspapers and, 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 and the, what you're saying, like the kind of uh, uh, criticism or at least analysis of the propaganda from coming from the government. It doesn't exist anymore in, in the same way, like, particularly in the, somewhere like The Guardian, which published the early WikiLeaks releases in 2011-12. It's become completely homogenous. Um, you, can, you can get one view um, and it's the establishment view and nothing else. And it is very sinister. I think that <clears throat> just to go back to something else you were saying, Marco, about the 9-11 the attacks as well, what was so amazing about the power of propaganda in that is that 15 of those 19 hijackers were Saudi, who is the, big yeah, US, the biggest, biggest ally, ally in, the Middle, in the Middle East. No one talks about that. Then they, obviously the figures within the Bush administration have been pushing for uh, all out war in with Iraq during the late 90s. They were angry at the first Bush for not going through um, and taking him out in 1991. And, and they actually a part of the propaganda, it wasn't just WMDs. If you remember, they were trying to link Saddam to Al-Qaeda Al through exactly. very, very like, extremely, uh, in many ways, ridiculous um, uh, propaganda. A lot of it came from that uh, different sources. Curveball was more the WND, but there were other ones about yellow cake and uranium. But the 9-11, the like the US government is still refusing to declassify files. That They've been sued by the, by the families of the 9-11 victims to try and get information about the Saudi involvement in 9-11. It's just, it's madness. Like how, how has the propaganda system managed to make it that? By the way, it's, all, it's also quite odd because just over the, the past two days, the BBC has been publishing um, stories um, taken from the Iraq files, including uh, only yesterday I read the, um, or a few days ago, I read the uh, the testament of the the CIA agent who uh, interviewed Saddam Hussein personally one to one for about two months, two to three months, and um, uh, 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 he he mentioned certain things. He said. You know, Saddam Hussein found out within 30 seconds that I was Lebanese, of Lebanese origin, and that I was Christian. And um, and when asked, for instance, okay, so what were the main things that you found out about Saddam fairly quickly? And one of the things was, and this is in the BBC, in the BBC uh, report, that he loathed Saddam, uh, Osama bin Laden, that he hated Saddam, Osama bin Laden. This was a CIA agent speaking of his personal encounters with, I mean, surely, surely. I mean, sometimes there's, you know, that in, in Arabic, there's a, there's, there's a, a, a saying in, uh, in Ammi, in colloquial Arabic, and that is that someone says, how do you know it's a lie? He says, from how big it is, <laughs> you know, from how extraordinary big it is. And this was a big lie. This was a huge lie. Well, Goebbels used to say, 
the biggest the lie, the more the people are going to believe it. But a large percentage of the popula- U.S. population believed before the war in Iraq that Al-Qaeda, that Saddam and Al-Qaeda were uh, in cahoots. Ha- yeah, exactly. Yeah, they which, were, they were in collaboration. Which is based on zero evidence. And that's how they, that was one of the main mechanisms they bought. They bought the population on side. Let's take it a little bit outside. I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, we can talk about Iraq for hours because the situation is so uh, dire. It's so extremely bad. I mean, for 20 years now, we're talking about uh, a failed country that really doesn't have any kind of hope looming even in the horizon of the next three to five years, where you're talking about uncountable. Uh, we don't know how many people are killed. I mean, I recently I was invited to a university um, in the north of England to talk about Iraq. And I mentioned the Lancet report that came out in around 2004, 2000, 2005, which said that there were, there were a million Iraqis dead. So I quoted that, I said in 2005, and someone shouted me down saying, no, 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 that's, that's, that's just a lie. I mean, the Lancet is one of the most reputable medical journals there Peer are. reviewed. Okay, so I, I immediately said, to, okay, can you tell me how many died? If not a million, how many? How many? And the gentleman just stayed quiet because no one knows. And to an extent, that could be said also of Afghanistan. No one knows how many well, people the, were killed. The, the latest data that have uh, been provided by this, uh, there's the cost of the war project of Brown University in the United States. I think they made an estimate calculation of 20 years of war until 2019, I believe, and I'm not sure. And the final estimate is about eight trillion dollars spent. That's money. Roughly one million people killed. Killed directly because of the war. You see, because there are indirect between, deaths. Uh, uh, I think between uh, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, but the most, um, yeah, okay, one million people and thirty-eight million people refugee or displaced. I mean, there this is... Uh, I mean, we're talking about a human a huge, catastrophe. A huge catastrophe. A human catastrophe, the size of which we haven't actually witnessed in, in, in our lifetimes and probably even before that. And this comes on the back of the sanctions in the 90s. Of course, of course. And then there are no quite Operation Desert Absolutely. Fox. Like, you know, it's you know, been constant if, for... If I, was, if I was a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not, I would like to assure everyone, one of my, you know, the criticisms that come my way from my colleagues is, oh, Anas, you're always citing... You're t- you're accusing us of being conspiracy theorists. But if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say the reason why George Bush uh, Sr. didn't continue to Baghdad and to kick out Saddam Hussein when he clearly could was in order to create the premise for the sanctions that actually debilitated Iraq absolutely entirely. But I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the catastrophe is almost immeasurable. We're talking about the cost that at least two to three generations will be continually paying for financially as well as in kind and emotions and stress and PTSD and all of these, these, these issues. But also, you know, you served during the time of Daesh. In Iraq. What kind of impact did the Iraq of 2003 have in creating the foreground for the rise of the likes of Al-Qaeda, the likes of Zarqawi, the likes of, 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 uh, of Daesh. I mean, that in itself beggars, I don't know, beggars an answer. I mean, what, what, what kind of impact did it have? There was a huge impact among the population because m- most of them endure horrible destruction in order to be left in a situation where it was very, very difficult to, to, to carry out a ordinary lives. Uh, Daesh is basically a byproduct of uh, uh, a country that uh, went into a fail as a failed state. But the most, let me say, funny aspect that basically people used to say that Daesh was born in the American jail in Iraq because all these people were, in a way, put together in the same place. And up to a certain extent, uh, I don't believe in the conspiracy theory that says that the American created Daesh. I have, doesn't make a, But maybe make, created the conditions. Definitely. Uh, this is the law of unintended consequences. Yeah, okay. Say okay. That. okay. Yeah, that so these people, these people, when you put them together, basically in, in jail, you are all together in a place, you create allegiances, you create affiliation, people talk among each other, there's someone that is basically lecturing the other, 
that basically you created a breeding ground for what happened next. And in the hierarchy of the horrible, of the horrible person, of course, the people die top, and then there's Al Qaeda, and then the, the all, all the other. Because when I was there, the the the, the it, what was clearly theorized by Dasha was the what it was called the management of savagery was basically a blueprint they printed the more we are ruthless the more we are going to prevail in the battlefield even before without fighting because the on the other side they'll just be scared because so of what scared. they hear and the, the, the tactic they used is just to say one two three four car bomb one after the other at the end of the day when you have a, basically a sequence of car bombs coming Every two, three minutes, one after the other, the only thing that you can, if you have no tanks and if you have basically are only with a gun, the only thing you can do is run away. Because there's another kind of, if you have no air force, air close air support to target and eliminate it. And basically this legend that was created by these fighters was basically so... Uh, warism for everybody that in a way explain how they have been able to to basically to take over almost all of the Iraq in a matter of days, yeah. essentially. But I think that the, the success that they saw was related to what you're saying, which is that it is a traumatized society. Yeah. And when you push a people that far, put so much trauma upon a society at large, they 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 tend towards extremes. They do. It's like uh, the rise of Nazi Germany happened in the aftermath of extreme economic um, uh, difficulty. And I mean, in Iraq, it was it was violence as well. So I think that the US take, obviously, I totally agree that I don't think they, they created it purposefully, but they created the conditions. They destroyed a society. Uh, and when you have that and you have these uh, lunatics running through, the, the, the conditions 20 years ago, if the if Daesh had gone into Iraq, they would have just been kicked out instantly, you know, by the people. But there was a degree of desperation um, and trauma that just allowed them to, to prosper. And I mean, in 2014, it was crazy what happened. They, they took... It occurred also in the 70s in Cambodia. Right. There was an explanation that uh, basically the Khmer Rouge were so brutal, uh, fanatic, because uh, according to a theory, they have been exposed to massive bombings uh, yeah. by the American planes in Cambodia, that they came out this group of crazy people that started to behave in the, in the way. I, I, I think there's something to be said for that. I think there is, there are parallels with that. Um, obviously, the ISIS didn't get into power, they didn't take, but, but I think there are quite, quite similar, because that was an intense, what the Americans did in, in Laos and Cambodia, uh, was incredible the the amount of bombs they dropped in a short space of time completely destabilized the the region and moved everyone from the countryside to the people fled the countryside to the cities so that as you say it was that kind of creating a new kind of tumult as well like prison style conditions um, and when i was in iraq the main victims of daesh were the iraqis the ordinary people basically but daesh were mostly iraqis right um, well, there were Syrians as well, Syrians, but I, I mean, think the majority yeah, were meant to I mean, be there, there were Tunisians, there were people who came from all across from... Central Asia, even from uh, the, the Xinjiang. Uh, the Xinjiang one are now, a group of them is in Syria. Uh, they, they came from everywhere. In terms of, it's funny that uh, one of the data more, for me, more uh, shocking is in terms of ratio of a population, the m major number of Daesh militants came from one of the more secular Arab countries that was Tunisia. It was a period. Tunisia was, in a way, in terms of secularity of yeah. the society, was very, very, very advanced compared to Iraq or other country. And we had this huge number in terms of population ratio that were Tunisia. It's possible. But, I mean, it's quite interesting in the work I do, the British and the Americans as well have used um, jihadists and, and Islamic extremists decades to uh, they've used them as an instrument a foreign policy instrument how many have since emerged as being uh, planted they were agents for canada and for other countries and they became leaders within yeah. within daesh and the such i mean that's but this is an heritage of the cold war because they use militant islam in the arab war because they wanted to keep at bay the socialist and the yeah. pro-soviet so what i have available here to counter the socialist the third world 
and the, the affiliation, the Marxist-Leninists, the only one that uh, I could use at the moment, at the time, were the Islamists, because basically they were against the atheism of this political force. That's why the left is kind of The problem is that the... basically uh, they started losing the control of the game or of the, the toy, and has usually happened, one of the most famous words used in the Middle East is blowback. But it still got, happens outside of the Cold War framework as well. But, but if you look at what happened in Syria, like Assad is a brutal dictator. What he did in Syria was a horrendous crime. Um, but the Western powers were not, uh, didn't, didn't get involved there for because they wanted to spread freedom and democracy. That, or they, they, they armed alongside the GCC, some of the, uh, again, these, the, and Israel as well, of some real uh, unsavory Islamic extremists to, to, to fight that government. So it still carries on. Um, and that, again, that war in Syria might have been over a lot quicker. Um, I mean, Assad survives, but he might have, he might, the, the, the civil war might have been over a lot quicker if they hadn't uh, enacted operations like that. was Timber a lot of other confidence because uh, for two years attended the, what was called the London 11. It was a group of uh, uh, Western and, and uh, Arab country managing the Syrian file. And in the discussion inside, there was someone, uh, including me, that were raising the, 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 the problem that you just mentioned, Matt. And uh, well, listen, these people, uh, ah, but we can use them and then we get rid of them. Hey, listen, I said, the Afghanistan example in the 70s uh, proves the contrary. These people, maybe they, they can take food from your hand, but then they are going to bite your hand. So at least let's try to have some history lesson properly learned. And uh, as I don't remember if it was Hegel that used to say, if there's someone that uh, human uh, beings, they do not learn from history, is that they don't learn from history. <laughs> and Libya as well. Sorry, that's another example. Tell me this. I mean, what have we learned? I mean, and we're not just talking about ourselves as, as members of the public, because, I mean, I think that we could get most people today to describe what's happened in Iraq as a, as a huge, you know, a best case scenario, like the media puts it, a blunder. Worst case scenario, and I have many, many friends who actually supported war at the time who now call it a lie. It was a lie. It was a crime. Um, but what do you think that states have learned from Iraq. I'll, I'll mention one thing that I always find absolutely fascinating in that when, you know, if you, if you were to cast your, your minds to 100 years from now, you look back and see 2003 as the time when a British prime minister and an American president fought a military battle and won, were victorious, okay? In normal circumstances, we'd have a statue of Tony Blair standing in front of, I don't know, Westminster Palace, or we'd have a statue of George W. Bush in the, the White, Gate, White House gardens. But we don't. In fact, what we do have is, and as someone, a producer in one of the, uh, the mainstream TV stations tells me, that whenever Tony Blair goes for an interview, one of the set conditions set by his team is, do not mention Iraq. And when I, when, I, when I said this to a number of American friends, one of them, a publicist, a publicist said the very same thing about George W. Bush. Mm. Whenever he goes out for a meeting, the condition is never, ever mention Iraq. Listen, uh, Tony Blair is, uh, in a way, I use in the, don't misunderstand me, it's a fascinating personality. I'll tell you why. Fascinating in the negative sense. It was 2007. He was almost leaving the, the, the prime ministerial job. He came at dinner in Rome with uh, Romano Prodi, was there. And between uh, Prodi and Blair, there was some uh, bad blood like, <laughs> a, a linked to the, the enlargement of Europe and so on. So, so uh, Prodi told me and another colleague, uh, when we sit at the table with Tony, unleash hell. <laughs> <laughs> so he started to talk about nuclear Iran and nuclear Iran and nuclear Iran. And, basically the same script that we have been watching on Iraq. So I look at Prodi, say, I go? You say, yes. Okay, Mr. Prime Minister, with all due respect, I'd like to raise your attention on certain points. First of all, 
in Iraq, in Iran, we have basically multiple center of powers. So assuming that the Iran will get a nuclear device, we have not one crazy man at the top that could decide in any moment to use the nuclear weapon. We have a country that is making his own calculation that is not fanatic. In, in terms of international policy, they have their own calculation. I think we should give much more attention to a neighboring country that is Pakistan, that is almost overwhelmed by extremists, uh, that uh, Al-Qaeda and so and so. And Pakistan has nuclear weapons. We don't know if Iran has nuclear weapons, but definitely Pakistan has. And if some of these people, Al-Qaeda, happen something in Pakistan, will take a nuclear weapon, you can be sure that they will use it. And Blair all the time was looking at me, nodding. And then when I finished, I said, he didn't say anything. <laughs> he remained So I didn't know if he agreed with me, if he disagreed, but he didn't want this to say. They give you a promotion. Or... Now, <laughs> but it was... And so I said, if this is, and I was presenting a compelling case in that circumstance that, that basically we have to be careful about Iran nuclear weapons and to, to prevent it. Well, but please give a little bit of attention to another situation that risks to be much more dangerous. It's, yes. I mean, I, Matt, do you think that... Iraq has taught Western leaders that the I don't know what. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question, isn't it? And it is true that there is a perception of the Iraq war, which is kind of different to other campaigns the US and UK have fought since the end of the Second World War. It's, there, there is, a, a, I think, a mainstream view that it was like uh, based on a lie. I think the WMD thing really hit home. But my feeling is that the way that the... Um, history is written and the way the establishment exerts power is that over the years they rewrite history and the new next generations forget what what the situation is here um so if you look at the vietnam war for example lyndon johnson is seen as a now a hero in america whereas he well, the, the crimes that were that were that were that were committed in vietnam were even worse in iraq actually uh, they absolutely devastated vietnam absolutely devastated it and and even nixon who who was the the his successor as president he's he actually is kind of uniquely got a negative perception in the states but that's not about what he did in vietnam it's about um watergate and and uh so i my my feeling is in a hundred years time you were saying in a hundred years time what were your perception i think the establishment historians the establishment um ideological uh defense mechanisms would have done their work and all the stuff that all the stuff I, which is real that we that is mainstream is felt would have kind of disappeared because it will be fitting well if we're all still here we probably won't be here in 100 years <laughs> if we carry on but um i'm not too optimistic um unfortunately I, although i will i'll end one one optimistic note is you talked about the anti-war movement and the fact we were hopeful in 2002 and 2003 that we could stop it we didn't do that but i do think that the power of that anti-war movement did stop maybe future attacks from the United States. It put up a, ma it was a massive deterrent because um, the project for New American Century and a lot of the kind of extremists that were part of the American Enterprise Institute, which was um, a, a very influential think tank in Washington and still is, they wanted to go on to Iran. They wanted to go on to Syria and they didn't. And they might have if there hadn't been such a massive outpouring of opposition to the war in Iraq. They didn't learn anything in my view. And this is, will be the opinion in one year time, in 100 year time. And the blueprint, what is really, really worrying me is basically the Iraqi blueprint. I see the same is now implemented with China. It's the exactly blueprint building the case for something. We don't know what is going to happen. Thank you very much, chaps. Cool. Really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you Anna. That was Thank fantastic. You, Excellent.